0: All right. (laughs) (laughs) You said your notes are not so structured. My notes are flat out unstructured.
1: Yeah, like I thought that they were structured because I was like copying and pasting things from the article that I wanted to talk about. But then they just look like these big chunks of paragraphs that I'm going to (laughs) have to like stop and read. So it's going to be great. Excellent.
0: Yes. Yeah. So... The topic that we wanted to bring into today's conversation is spurred from an article that was in The Guardian called, I'm a life coach, you're a life coach. And the subtitle is the rise of an unregulated industry, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. Great. And the article, it's really good. And we'll link it in the show notes for anybody who wants to read it. A quick synopsis of the article. It focuses on Brooke Castillo who Mm -hmm. is a life coach look I've been pretty clear I don't know who most of these people are I'm learning a lot of these names through now this pursuit of getting to know who these people actually are so I'm not super familiar with Brooke but I know her brand because it's so familiar (laughs) as I was looking at it
1: (laughs) yeah I was the Thinking really like I don't even have any intention of talking about her specifically it's much more about the points in the article that I found really interesting and as you guys know this is a conversation that's open-ended and has more questions than answers so Mm -hmm. I just I have lots of questions for Kelsey too since she has been more in more of a coach role certainly than I ever have yeah um but yes So that's what we're talking about today, the coaching industry and the rise of the coaching industry during the pandemic and kind of thinking about what caused that, what people's motivation is. So we're going to be musing on these things today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm, I think about all the time is like cultural context, right? That's, I'm always looking at the trends and the kind of waves that are rippling through and what the context of some of those changes was that caused the changes or were caused by the changes, right? So I find it really fascinating looking back over the last 18 months at this industry and dissecting what happened, like why it's it's happening, because it's still happening. And I thought that the article prompted some really good points about this maybe by exposing some of what's happening maybe not on a deeper level but just like every time some kind of exposure gets put on these things I feel more validated (laughs) way Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah I'll say this now and we'll see how it plays into the conversation but as I was uh, thinking about this episode and some of the, the questions that I have and the points that I'm, that I'm wanting to make, or, you know, just where I'm at in some of my, my processing around all of this. One of the things that hums through that is, you know, we talk about MLMs and their relation to the spiritual and wellness kind of coaching world. And It got me wondering why are MLMs so popular with white women and the commonalities between the coaching industry and MLMs and again how white culture or maybe some of the values and the ideologies that whiteness supports um, make these models really attractive to certain demographics of people. I think it will come through. A little yeah. bit later in a more articulate way, but, um, and I I started to look at some stats, but I haven't had time to go really really deep into this thought process. So we might end up coming back to that point on a later episode. Yeah, I was um, gonna
1: say I feel like that's a part of a, a really big conversation which yeah. I want to have too, and I think we should have all the time.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. I think the first statistic that jumped out at me in this article is a good one to kind of just plant right here and now before we get kind of into some more opinions or just theorizing. The article says that there are estimates that the number of life coaches grew by a third between 2015 and 2019. And so obviously that's pre-pandemic. So what's happening during that moment, this is where I where I start to think like, okay, what's happening during that moment? That's the time frame that I started to be active in the work as well. Um, for me, that really started at the beginning of life coaching. Is kind of the turn my work started to take at the beginning of 2019. Okay, um, and so that's the timeline that that I'm working with personally for context. Um, so yeah, a third between 2015 and 2019, and I would love to know a number, um, if anybody has this or wants to look it up, of how much, what percentage the number of life coaches grew between 2019 and now I know that, um,
1: it, hold on. There was some statistics in there. Oh, it doesn't say that it difference, but I know that the Life Coach School, which is Brooks School, made thirty-seven million just last year because of the jump in revenue. That's gross, wow. gross, gross revenue. So that's not you know profit, but
0: holy moly, yeah.
1: And obviously, the, she is one of the top you know, that, that's a very, it's, it's, it is much like an MLM because it's made to, it's presented as though this is an accessible career for everyone. And it truly is not for many reasons, which we'll break down today. So yes, I don't have that specific statistic,
0: but that does give some some context. Yeah. That's how, that's how much people are at, investing in the pursuit of this career yeah and it's just just through her channel just through her platform yeah it's
1: really well we can start with the money stuff because I think that's a big part of the conversation yeah and we were talking a second ago about and we won't get into this too much right now but why certain demographics are attracted to coaching versus other demographics and. I would also want to point out that there's something about, I think, you know, privilege culture that leads people to want to, I don't know, it's tricky because I know that it's not, that's not true across the board, but I do think that very much like an MLM, I think you're sold on a final product rather than necessarily the process to get there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but yes, we can talk about the money, the money stuff for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you want to say about the money? Just in terms of how
1: mounting these programs can, like costs can get and how it's really this it can lead, okay, well, I have to do this program and I have to do this program and I have to do this program. And then all of a sudden you're thousands of dollars in debt trying while you're being encouraged to create a business for yourself. And there's something really off about that. And, mm-hmm. and listen, I do agree with taking risks. I do agree with investing in yourself and but I also think that people need to be smart and practical about their finances. And it's interesting to me in a a year where everybody took a financial hit, the coaching industry grew the most. And again, we'll get into more of why that is, but I do find how much these services cost outright for the most part to be really unethical. There are a lot of people that are very affordable, you know, that they do every once in a while, they'll do a thousand dollar course, but everything else they have in their platform is really accessible cost wise, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to have a variety of costs, but I do see, you know, these all the time, these big trainings and they're thousands of dollars. And I, I just feel, it just always felt I don't know. It's, it's tricky. I think if you are a business owner, spending more on your business to grow it is great. I think some of these things can be invaluable. They can create a return based on the work that you do on yourself and your business, of course. And I'm not devaluing that at all. I just really do think that it's such a case by case basis. And there's this expectation that everybody should be spending more than they're making more than they're bringing in, in order to build a business. I think that's what I'm getting at. Sorry. in this super long winded way.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And, and that's, that's part of the sales pitch. It's the, um, you have to spend money to make money. The, the weaponizing of that, because there's truth in that right? You do have to spend some money. If you want to start a business, you're going to need equipment. You're going to need permits. You're going to need to know how to do the things that you need to do. Um, But there's like an extreme version of that that is being wrapped up in the marketing around so much of this. And it's really, really easy to get wrapped up in that if you're looking for solutions and from an ungrounded place, right? And I I wanna go ahead and bring that into the conversation because this last 18 months, almost two years now has been extremely ungrounding. And so we're all looking for solutions, right? We're all seeing some opportunity through the change and the transition of what is happening And so it's really, really easy to get wrapped up into thinking that there's some secret that you have to pay everything you're worth and then some to have access to, to prove to the divine or some, you know, to, to some entity that you have enough faith.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, faith has been commodified for a long time but yes i i really just i really think that i watch people putting all of their focus into these types of programs and while i think that they do work for some people they do not work for everybody and i think it also needs to be more of a supplementary thing like you should yeah one thing I like about Gabby Bernstein, and I know she's people either like her or they don't like her. But one thing I do like about her is that she always encourages people to start if they want to be a coach. That should be your side hustle. Yeah, you should absolutely continue to work at your job to continue yeah. to get health care to continue to get benefits, and whatever you need to do to create your own form of stability and. In, And I think that that's really smart. Not everybody is in a place in their life where they want to have no stability or where they should have that, especially when people leave their careers to pursue life as a coach or to take a more entrepreneurial route. Again, I commend everybody for doing that. Like, I'm not talking shit about that at all. But I do think that there's no shame in taking your time and keeping uh, a side hustle or getting a service job, you know, working as a bartender, working as a waitress, getting a job that's flexible, getting a job, you know, I, I just think that we can, yeah, it just gets really tricky and financially unethical for me when I think people are overly encouraged to drop everything and invest all they have into this, these programs.
0: So when I back at the beginning of the year decided that I wasn't going to be offering high ticket coaching anymore. I dropped my rates for mentorship and this is why because it had become my full-time thing in a way that I was compromising my integrity, it was compromising myself and my commitment to living my values in order to sell and I got there because I made it my full-time thing. I wrote about this in the spring. There's an issue of my newsletter that I wrote about late stage capitalism and integrity. When your income, when your livelihood, when your survival depends on your creative expression, there's always going to be a lot of encouragement in the current systems that we're in to compromise yourself in order to make money. And so I dropped all of my rates. Mentorship is no longer; it's it's only a very very small part of my work now, and it will continue to be going forward. It's everything you just said, Ashley. Yeah. Uh, you know, I supplement with other work. I have other projects. I got a part time job in order to make that available to myself. And looking back, and this is what I what I'm adamant with with my my people now. <laughs> they all have full time jobs because they're not yet in a position of being able to not work full time. I did that and I went bankrupt. I made a bunch of money. I made a lot of money. Um, not as much as, you know, a lot of life coaches are sold that they're going to make. I made enough money to live in, in central Ohio and to sustain myself. But I also spent so much money because I thought I had to. Yeah. And that is, not how it should work. Maybe that's how it works, but I, this is, I got really clear on this at the beginning of the year. Like maybe, maybe it's how it actually does work. I don't know, but I don't think that it's how it should work. And so I'm not going to live that way anymore. And I am, you know, with my clients, with the people around me, adamant that focus is on doing things right and letting things take as long as they're going to take. And, um, not creating pressure where there's, where there doesn't need to be any, because that pressure to succeed quickly, it's really damaging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And not everything has to be so cutthroat, you know, I mean, I, I really think that there is really something to slow and steady growth that's approachable and affordable and while I do appreciate people that say okay look a mentorship with me is going to be 50 grand it's going to be a whole year you have to be all in and that's it sure but at least you know what you're getting yourself into right you know that is a very specific type of thing that I think, I'm not saying it benefits or doesn't benefit the person. I mean, it better benefit them for, you know, that high or higher. I mean, there's people that charge six figures for this.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I'm not saying that those programs don't work. Um, But I do think that that does not need to be the norm. And I don't, and I think that it becomes this access to, privilege and this access to just, it, it distorts the reality when you're asking for that much money or for when that, when, when it's the numbers are consistently so high all the time, it just, I don't know that that's the best way. I think it's a way, but I just don't think it needs to be so normalized.
0: I agree with that. And, you know, it's to go back to, you know, the ethics of being the coach who is setting the numbers. I do think that it's the responsibility of the coach to meet a, meet a potential client where they're at. And much to the dismay of pretty much every business coach I've ever worked with, I have pretty much always met my clients where they're at, because I just, I really believe in that, that That $50,000 is not going to be much of anything to someone who's already making millions of dollars. But to someone like me, that's not accessible right now. And so, as the coach, knowing who you're talking to, you know, and being able to say, I'm not the coach for you. Um, Do not spend this much money. You know, if you don't want to lower your price, just say, don't spend this much money right now to be able to have a conversation with a potential client to say like, where are you at? What, what's really going on? And I don't know, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's it's
1: really okay for people to ask for, to be paid and to be highly compensated for the amount of work that goes into taking on a one-on-one mentorship and- I agree. Uh, and, and I'm not saying I have the answer to this, but I do think there's an issue with if you do that consistently and that's your only revenue stream, then you're pretty much only catering to women of a certain demographic. And that gets tricky. You know, if you're saying you can only have me, if you can afford it, then you're really only. So I, I really appreciate when people have, like I said, multiple offerings where they have Mm -hmm. offerings that are that are on a scale of high to low that way that there's something for everybody in each financial demographic or commitment level. I also think it's the commitment and financial uh, commitment being so so synonymous in this way that feels really kind of shame-based. I'm not into very much like oh, well, you're not committed if you're not going to spend your entire yeah. savings from this entire year. You don't want it year. enough. You, you don't, don't want, want it enough. enough. Right. I have real problems with that. Just yeah, because, absolutely. again, it's not necessarily the most responsible thing for somebody to do. And that's also like saying, I'm the only one that can help you. That person can maybe find an affordable therapist to unpack yeah. some of those issues or take an online business course and while they may not get everything out of it they're also not compromising themselves financially. Yeah. So I think you know that and then also I think that people raise their prices in order to elevate their mm-hmm. lifestyle. And that's they also do. really tricky because all again on the one hand as you grow as you elevate your own practice you can elevate your teachings you can charge more. Mm-hmm. But then just because you want to live a certain lifestyle that's not the responsibility of your clients to fund that and it's also not the responsibility I mean, you chose to be a coach you know yeah. <laughs> you chose yeah. to do something that is highly financially unstable and it is not on your clients to kind of compensate for that when things are not working out you know and all of a sudden you want to raise your prices or you want to do more, add more courses because you're not making it as much revenue stream. Again, that's not on the responsibility of the, the client. And I feel like that gets really distorted with coaches mm-hmm. because all of a sudden they're like, well, I, and again, I'm not against people raising their prices. I, I just. I
0: see a lot I, of price yeah. raising, Ashley, and sorry. I just, I just, I also see a lot of price raising that is done to intentionally create FOMO and create scarcity and I have a major issue with that. I think that is so fucked up. It's so fucked up. It's that now or never, uh, don't come crying to me later when I raise my prices. I've, I've seen a lot of that and it's, it's really gross. Yeah, it is gross.
1: Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> this article refers to coaching as a gig-based economy, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm a freelancer. So I work in film and I've been a freelancer since I was 18 years old. I've never had a steady job. I have no idea what it's like to have a salary. (laughs) So I get gig work and I, (laughs) but I also work in an incredibly lucrative business, you know? Yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting way to put it gig based economy Because I've always felt like such the outsider amongst everyone I know who has a a
0: steady job and a salary and they look at me like I'm nuts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I missed that point in the article and I definitely agree with the assessment. I mean, I've definitely over the last five years been a freelancer for all intents and purposes, get a client, have a spike in income host a, a, class or a workshop, have a little spike in income. And then it's that almost feast or famine. And it's not for everybody. And I I'm so, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's not for everybody. Not everybody has a nervous system that can handle that. And even now I I'm in a place of like, I can handle it until I can't, And I'm learning to sustain my ability. I'm just learning about it, right? So even if maybe we're not made that way, um, you know, from the beginning, this skill can be learned, a skill to be able to live within the context of those waves of income, right? And the lack of security that, the lack of the feeling of security that can come with a salary, Or like tips, working, you know, a serving job or something, knowing that you can get your hands on cash in any given moment. It's taken me years now of being being full-time self-employed and supplementing twice with part-time jobs on the side to get to where I am, where I can sustain it for, it was about three years between part-time jobs that I was able to sustain it. But it's not for everybody.
1: No. And I love what you're saying. I think having a, and, and also having, you can coach part-time on the side. It does not have to be, Yeah. you know, you can have a business and be a business owner that is part-time and on the side. That's not your main source of income. And in no way, shape or form is that some type of failing.
0: Yeah. So you know? this is a good point too. When I left my corporate work in 2016, I was really having a moment of reckoning around how much I had bought into my work as my identity. Mm. And there is so much of the narrative around the work of a coach that is, is being sold around identity and there's like a worthiness factor. There's a status that comes with this kind of lifestyle that you can achieve. If you just do X, Y, and Z and live this way, inevitably you can, you can make this much money too, if you work hard enough and you want it bad enough. And then you can also have this status. And I just, I rebuke that anymore. And I recognize that my work is a part of me. The things that I'm, that I'm doing are part of my experience, but I don't buy into the narrative that it defines me. When you kind of understand that that's a cultural thing that is happening, it's easier, I think, to understand why people get sold on some of the things they get sold on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting,
1: this concept of having to sell yourself, essentially, and your Mm -hmm. life and your success in order to be a coach. So, Isn't it gross? uh, (laughs) It is, but I also see, okay, so I look at your Instagram, and I feel like you're really open and vulnerable, and you share so much of your life, and I love looking at your stories because of that.
0: Oh, thank so, you. Because like, I feel I like I'm really, a chronic overshare. No,
1: no, no. See, I really, I really appreciate that vulnerability because I will not be doing that.
0: <laughs> you know, I watch I will. yours, and I, I, watch yours, and I'm like, I should be more like Ashley. <laughs> oh God, No, no,
1: no <laughs> I don't. I just, I did that for a bit in my ter- with my tarot page, and I once I stopped doing it, I really I'm actually thinking about deactivating that page for a while just because I don't want to actually share yeah myself yeah publicly on the internet I also have no I have no reason to I'm a writer I work in the film business there's nothing my both my accounts are private there's nothing about my life that anyone finds interesting or needs to know or anything you know um but I really I was going to say like I actually really love your I feel like you do that so effortlessly, like you're such a natural leader and you just live this like out loud. And I, I really admire that um, actually. Thank because you. you're also <laughs> one of the few people that I feel like does that authentically. And I also really, it's just, you can tell when people are being vulnerable because that's who they are and not
0: because they're trying to sell you on something cuz I'm you know. not trying to sell anything anymore. If no, someone wants but, to, if someone wants to work work with me, I, they can they can ask me. But like but it's, so it's interesting. It's like I do think
1: that like if I look at a I like to see who people are if I'm going to buy into their course. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like we talk about the podcast recovering from reality a lot with Alexis Haynes and she shares a lot about her life. She's really open on her Instagram. And yeah. that course that she has is fantastic. I mean it's all self-study, you know, mm-hmm. I sometimes go on the calls. I sometimes don't <laughs> go on calls. But I I feel like I wouldn't be, be comfortable buying a course if I didn't really know who the person was and what their values are. Yeah. And so I, I appreciate it, but I also find it like that is so not for me. <laughs> and I it always felt really like something I did not want to do when I was doing it yeah. with my, my tarot page. I was always like, I don't want to fucking make a video. I don't want to share. I got used to it. I got into it. But it's just not for me. Yeah, And I wonder, like, are people really prepared to put themselves out there in authentic in an authentic way because if you're not kind of what's the point you know yeah. you don't need another like pastel grid full of fucking live brush last, script. Love quotes and yeah. like cliches, whatever the fuck, all the cliches you
0: know no and more like, cliches staged
1: photos <laughs> yeah I, I just it's so it's so nauseating and so yeah I don't even know where I was going with that but other than it's okay
0: I how, do, I, how do you it, share yourself? Like, what does that process even like? It's interesting that you bring this up because I have this push pull relationship with sharing myself because I, I also have very dark transformative habits and I do sometimes think like it would be really nice to just like not share myself this way but I continue to do it. So I must prefer it. Mm -hmm. But, but part of that, like knowing that I, I have this push pull has kind of allowed me to give myself permission to just go away. Sometimes that's okay too. And finding that balance, it makes it feel better. And I do like to share myself. Like if I'm really being honest, of course I do. I did make my, my Kelsey Furlong Instagram private this year, which feels really good. Like yeah it was public for it was public forever. and I realized that a lot of that was my ego, wanting to be seen by everybody. and I'm not in that place anymore. I'm in a solid place with I want to show myself to the people I want to show myself to.
1: Yeah, I mean that seems like putting yourself out there publicly so much all the time, like that would be a real
0: that would like wreak havoc on the nervous system.
1: You know, that did did not
0: when I was way more active. I look back at my memories and I'm like, God damn, like what was I fucking doing all day? Oh no, I was making content because it's during COVID. And so this is, you know, this is another connection here to this like rise of this life coaching business and, and Instagram coaching spirituality. What were we all doing during COVID? Well, I was alone in Santa Fe, just mourning and trying to stay afloat, trying to keep this thing that I'd gotten going, going, and um, and not become a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was working on that too, man. That's for sure. <laughs> but just, just you know, I was alone all the time, so I was making content, and not very good content. Because I was making so freaking much of it. And so again, that's part of where I've really had to just come to myself with myself. Like, sometimes I need to go away and be quiet so that I can really focus on the bigger picture and doing less but better. That's just like my common mantra. Um, You know, but 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 again, less but better. I have that everywhere. That's really gotten me through the last six years as a reminder, because I just, I have such a tendency to speed up and I'm constantly reminding myself to just take the next step, let things take as long as they're going to take, slow down, take it easy, less but better. (laughs) Anyway. So, you know, there's, okay. So during COVID, that's the other, that's the other piece of this that I think is really important to pay attention to is we had time. The context of what was going on around us, a lot of um, uprisal, a lot of revolutionary things happening, a lot of social unrest, a lot of people losing their jobs, just instability in general, right? We talked about instability on the podcast before. What does instability do to us? Well, it flares up the nervous system. We all go a little bit nuts. So Mm -hmm. everybody's looking for solutions. Everybody's looking for something to do with their time. A lot of people are making more money than they'd been making because they're now getting unemployment plus the, the extra unemployment from the federal government, a little bit of spending money, nowhere to go to spend it. We're all online 24 fucking seven looking at bright and shiny people who were not so affected by the pandemic because they'd already been on this lifestyle kind of path with their work. Does that track for you? Yeah. 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 And so it's not hard to understand why all of these people are getting hooked into thinking that this career could be the ticket that they're looking for to have the level of freedom that they, that they want. Absolutely
1: absolutely there's there's something about it i mean i think there's innately something really appealing about the idea of making your life in being in service of others of helping helping yourself and helping other people
0: mm-hmm. and i do think that speaks to
1: something really good in people but i also think it can be really ego driven and i think people rarely you know, this actually segues into the next point. Big takeaway from this article is, I think people need to ask themselves, what makes you think you can be a life coach? Mm-hmm. Like, if mm-hmm. if your if your quest is to be of service to people, which is what life coaching is, why, you know, and it, not why? I understand why. But you're choosing an industry that's completely unregulated. You don't have to have any type of degree. You don't have to have. There's no accountability. Tra- there, right. There's no training. There's no accountability, which I can understand is there's no code of ethics, right? And I can understand that it's like, well, why would I? I'm not going to pay to get a psychology degree and spend four years in school and go into <laughs> hundreds of thousands of debt in that capitalist system, which, you know. Um, because education should be free, but it's not. So I understand why people don't want to take that route, but I think that people really need to ask themselves, well, what type of training do I need? You know, in order to really be able to ethically hold space for people, in order to be trauma informed. It's not just about the business. If you're taking, if you're choosing a life path that has to do with holding space for people during crisis then you need to have your shit in check and you really you need to be humble enough to say like what type of degrees and certifications would best serve this path and it's not just about you know Esther Hicks and Tony Robbins and all of your intuition and the way that you feel me, me, me manifestation, abundance for me, 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 you know, is that why you want to be a coach or do you want to be a coach to help people? Because if you want to be a coach to help people, then you owe it to the people that are going to come into your path to be ethically sound, you know, and stable. And stable and stable and also understand how to best guide people
0: through who God knows what they're going to come to you with. Yep. So a couple of things, the first thing that I'm thinking right now is, okay. So you're talking about, you know, the ego, ego driven motivation toward helping people there's a savior complex wrapped up in that. And so again, I'm asking, like I'm asking questions and I don't have stats for this episode. Um, so I think we'll have to come back and like really give some facts. Right now I'm just sort of exploring, I guess. But I, I wonder, I would like to know what the numbers are for the percentages of white women and black women or more people of color, indigenous people. Same as I'm asking about the MLMs because there's so many connections Here in general, I'm wondering about the stats because I feel like I know already that it's mostly white women. And why is it that we would be more drawn to something like that? I could throw some ideas out there.
1: Okay. I was trying to say a big word and I was like, nope, that's not coming out of my mouth. So close. Not today. Not today. Not today. So I think, how do I say this? I know we brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid on this show before, and I think we should link to it in the show notes because it is one of the most insightful social um, theories, I think. And whether this is directly based on the correlation between race and poverty, the correlation between race and class, the correlation between race and access, Um, I mean, those are their own statistics in and of itself. But I just, I want to point out that when any type of disenfranchised group, and as we know, historically, people who are minorities, people who are of color or who have disabilities are more disenfranchised. So when you're dealing with the basics of human needs, safety, shelter, food. And that's true for white people as well. Again, I'm not making this about, this is not so black and white, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but it's more about socially where you are for whatever reason, there's so many factors. When your focus is on trying to survive, the idea of dedicating your life to self-actualization is not on the table. Yeah. The idea of living your life in a way that is all about your own personal growth is an immense privilege. We were talking about Rachel Hollis earlier and that whole debacle with... (laughs) You know her. I
0: have so much to say, but not today. Yes,
1: but not today. <laughs> but in, in, in essence, she was called out for having white privilege, and her rebuttal. And I know that she does come from. She doesn't come from money, and her rebuttal was, "I've worked for everything I I have," and and I, I'm she has. I'm not doubting that, but she doors have opened for her. To get to this place as a coach, to get to this place to live self actualized because she is a white woman. Doors that are not available for women of color are available to white women. That's a mm. very obvious fact. I don't feel like I need to state that further. And to not acknowledge that that's part of your success is wrong. And also, why even fight it? You right. know, why even fight it? Right. Of course, it's part of your success. It's part of my success. I'm a white woman. Of course, I've had privilege because of that. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? No. But of course I have. And to say, no, I've I've got everything I have because I've worked hard. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. That's part of why I've had. So when you have people that are saying, you know, you have to get up at 4 a.m. And it's like, well, there's a lot of people that have to get up at 4 a.m., Because that's what their job requires them to do. Not because they can sit and meditate and, you know, align themselves for the day. Like, and that's
0: even more of a reason that these practices should be more accessible to people. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you for saying all of that. Yeah, I totally fucking agree. So there's a line in the article, the Guardian article, where Casillo says, Helping the mental and emotional health of the human species is a reward in and of itself. And on top of that, you get paid for it. It's a beautiful thing, my friends. And I wrote that down in my notes because that really pulled up. Again, I, I continue to kind of come back to this argument around species supremacy and supremacy in general, thinking that you innately know how to help another person is such a colonial way it's such a colonizer way of thinking with that if you don't have a certain level of expertise a certain level of training that you're just innately qualified uh I really really you know i am saying, like I really really struggle with this like like I'm sorry <laughs> I just can't are you thinking of what I'm putting down I am I like, and that's, why, no, and that's I- why i bring this back to race because there there is it's it's white culture right and and i know the race thing i i really have a hard time talking about it it's touchy but it shouldn't be because it's not about my white skin it's not about your white skin it's about it's about the culture that has been perpetuated through white communities and the beliefs and the values and the ideologies that this culture is founded on and so when you have someone like rachel hollis say well, I worked for everything. It's because she really, she really believes a certain way. And so she's getting defensive because she, she, she really has this, these ideals that are forming her experience that are driving the behaviors. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah, so, there's, yeah, sorry. I just, it's okay. I just like, it, I'm I'm really trying to figure out how to articulate it in the most effective way inside of these conversations. There are all of these underlying ideas about meritocracy and productivity in general that are driven through capitalism. They're driven through the system and the culture that we're now pretty indoctrinated into. And um, that's why I just, I keep raising the question, like, why are white women so attracted to certain things like this? And that's one of yeah, them. Yeah, right. Like, is there this correlation of, I feel that
1: I know best and I can save you and I can help you. And I don't actually yes. need to go through the protocol of degrees and I don't need to do just me and my existence. Yeah, and I've enough. worked
0: hard and you know, I've, I've suffered, I've had adversity. And look, I've had all these thoughts myself. And I still have them come up sometimes and sure there's truth. Like I've had a a lot of adversity and not as much or in the same capacity as a lot of other people. So I'm in no, no way comparing, but you know, I really encourage people and I have this conversation with myself all the time just to check in with that. You know, why do you think I'm qualified for this? Why do I, why do I want to do this in the first place? You know, and what's really what's really driving this? Yeah, I think that's that should be a question that
1: every person that wants to be a coach should ask themselves, why do I want to do this? What about my life experience makes me qualified? Am I selling my trauma? Am I prepared to deal with someone that comes in with suicidal ideations? What do I do in that situation? What do I do when somebody has is putting all their money into this course and they have, they can't pay their rent. Mm
0: -hmm. You know
1: what? I think those are. Yeah. I mean, I I know you're not done articulating the, that point in terms of the white savior complex and coaching. And I think that again, like, I'm sure we'll talk about it. 500 more times because that's (laughs) a really, that's like just the the tip of the iceberg, but I just think, and again, I I think people have a lot of really good intentions getting into coaching, but what I think Kelsey and I are both saying is just that it's important to ask yourself why and to look at the cultural context of why you feel that you are the one to help people. And if it is because of something that is trauma-based, like being a survivor or what have you, I think that it's really important to at least entertain getting some proper training so that you're not just transferring your trauma onto other people, because also your way of healing yourself does not necessarily mean that that's the best way for other people. Yeah. And so you have to be really careful, I think, when you're, if your niche is, you know, I healed my cancer through CBD and green juice, let's say, you know, which is problematic. I think, you, you know, you got some work to do. I'm not saying that your points aren't valid because I think both those things are really um, healing for cancer patients, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. There's a really fine line there. And I think people are just jumping into this and really not taking seriously what it means to, To, I mean, how she described it, healing the
0: mental and emotional, I mean, you're helping, not a fucking sex- hel- helping, which is a word that I actually take some issue with. We'll talk about that later. Helping the mental and emotional health of the species.
1: Yeah, but you're not because you're not a, ther- you're not a psychiatrist. You're not a
0: therapist. You're not trained
1: in any way, shape or form. And I'm not saying that healing is is <laughs> defined by psychiatry and therapy. Like my God, um, I see healers. I got a healing today. I, I do energy work, I, you know, all the things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but do not assume that you are doing that as a life coach. Yeah should not assume that that's what you're doing. That's such a good point. You don't know. (laughs) No, and also what the fuck makes you qualified to do that? Because you can tell people how to sell essential oils. Like what the fuck are you doing to help people, you know? Really? Mm -hmm. Like 90% of life coaches, it's just the same regurgitated bullshit over and over and again. And even the ones that are successful, they're just regurgitating their own yeah. bullshit over and over and over against the same fucking stories and the same points and the same
0: things. And it's like, yeah. okay, it's not real. Go. Some of the other points that I take issue with in like the, the marketing and the selling of coaching, like becoming a coach too, um, which we can talk about in another episode, but I just, I had just written down, like, you know, it's problematic that it's only, the work is sold as really only being sustainable as long as you're willing to continue to spend more and more money. Yeah. Which yeah. I think we should unpack later. Yeah, Ashley, that what you just said. Everything about that is so valid. Is there anything else that you're wanting to bring into the conversation that you feel like we didn't cover today? I think we're no. it's time to wrap it up.
1: No, and I would love to hear from people who are coaches or who are thinking about becoming coaches, because I just want to reiterate, I'm not knocking that as a choice. I think it's a very um, noble path in its essence. So I'm just curious to hear more opinions than just my own, you know?
0: Yeah, I would also like to invite that. And I, I feel the same as much as I've shared my own discomfort within within my own experience coaching that I know that that is me that's only my perspective and my experience um I also agree that just in its essence it's it's honorable uh but there has to be a level of discernment and there really needs to be a lot of humility, like so much more humility than what we're seeing right now explode in order for the industry to have any integrity. And if I could express the objective that I would love to to have for the industry, I would love to see it really cleaned up. I would love to see it thriving in a way where It did have integrity and was really serving people, but I don't think that that's the majority of what's happening right now. And so for anybody who is wanting to get involved or is involved, yeah, I'd love to have a conversation, but also just some things to think about. There are a lot of traps. (laughs) There are a lot of traps. Oh, this is what was on my mind. And I, I think that this might be the point. You know, you said a lot of really well-intentioned people get involved in the the work of coaching and of leadership in general. And we all will be really wise to continue to remember that it's actually the impact that we're making that matters. It's not our intentions. I think that's the point that so many miss. We know we just talked about Rachel Hollis. We can talk more about that if people want us to. I think that's a, a good example of some pretty essential lessons in leadership. Yeah, what's the impact? And you can't know what the impact is gonna be unless you understand who the people are that are gonna be impacted by it and what the context of their experience is as much as possible. And you are willing to hear feedback. And when you're wrong, say, okay, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then do better. Right. And then do better. So yeah, it's something definitely to watch this, the way that the industry is kind of bubbled and I've, I've been predicting it was going to kind of um, explode. Is that what bubbles do? They explode, they pop, it's going to pop (laughs) sooner than later. So we'll, I mean, we'll see in some ways I'll admit that I would really love to see that happen, but I also know that there are a lot of really good people In the industry. And so I'd like to see just more reform. Yeah. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks.